Chapter Four, Part Two of the English Language by Logan Pearsall Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Word making in English continued. This short account of the decay of our English methods of word formation and the invasion of foreign affixes, which seem like the foreign weeds in English rivers to be checking our native growths can hardly be very cheerful reading for a lover of the old English language, and he cannot but regret the disappearance of many of those vivid syllables to which we owe in the past so many of our most expressive words. But as elsewhere in modern language, where reason and imagination are at war, imagination must give way to the claims of the intellect. Modern language is for purposes of use, not beauty, and these abstract terms in ism, ist, and eyes, dull and dreary and impossible for his purposes as the poet finds them, are indispensable for the hard thinking of science and of social and political theory. There are other ways of forming new words, not by addition, but by taking away one or more of the syllables or letters of which they are composed. One of these processes is by what is called back formations. Sometimes a word has a false appearance of ending with a well-known suffix, and to those ignorant of its character seems to imply the existence of an original word from which it has been formed. Thus the old adverb darkling seems like an adjective formed on a supposed verb to darkle and from this supposition such a verb arose. Hushed, H-U-S-H-T, which was originally an exclamation like whist, seemed to imply, and therefore gave rise to, a verb to hush, and the old singulars, peas, sherries, skates, being regarded as plurals, have begotten new singulars in pea, cherry and skate, we are all familiar with the process called shortening, by which words much used in conversation and hurried speech are clipped of one or more of their syllables, though we are probably not all of us aware of how much the English vocabulary has been enriched in this way. But to the process which has given us in recent times such words as cab, photo, cycle, bus, we owe the older words size from assize, sport from disport, and the dignified consuls from consolidated annuities has lost almost all traces of the mutilation which it has so recently undergone. Names of places are also a fruitful source of new words, for the genius of the language, when it has a gap in its vocabulary to fill, is apt to seize on any material ready to its hand. Worsted is from Worsted, a village near Norwich, and Canter is, of course, an abbreviation of Canterbury. Persons also have sometimes the good or bad luck to add their names to the language. Tawdry is from the Anglo-Saxon St. Audrey, who was famous for her splendid attire. 
The names of an English earl and a Scotch murderer are preserved in sandwich and the verb to burke, and the English word, which in recent times has been most widely adopted into other languages, is from the patronymic of an Irish landlord, Captain Boycott. From fictitious characters come quixotic, dry as dust, the verbs to Hector and to Panda, while pamphlet is from the name of a character in a 12th century comedy. But many of our commonest and most familiar terms cannot be explained by any of the above methods, and have, as far as is known, no etymology in the true sense of the word. This history of all living languages shows the continual appearance of new terms which cannot be traced to any familiar root or previously existing formation. Among words of this kind which appear in the Anglo-Saxon period are dog and curse, while such common words as girl and boy, lad and lass, pig and fog and cut appear in the 13th and 14th centuries. Bet and jump and dodge are not found before the 16th century, while the 18th century saw the appearance of capsize, donkey, boar, B-O-R-E, and many others. None of these words can be traced with any certainty to words of previous formation. In the 19th century, rollicking and the verb to loaf have appeared in England, while rowdy, bogus, boom and blizzard are of equally obscure American formation. The same process has been going on in foreign languages and many of our words of this class are borrowed from abroad. Risk and brave and bronze seem to be of Italian origin, while flute, frown and gorgeous and the 19th century rococo have apparently arisen on French soil. These new words were a considerable difficulty to the older philologists who believed that all new words were descended from ancient roots formed in times beyond the ken of history, when our ancestors possessed the root-creating faculty, a pure productive energy which their descendants, it was believed, had long since lost. It is one of the discoveries, however, of more recent philology that this faculty is by no means lost that wherever language finds itself in its natural state, new words appear, words which have all the character of fresh created roots, and which soon take their place side by side with terms of long descent, and are used, like them, for the formation of derivatives and compounds. Although further research may discover the origin of some of these obscure words, as they are called, there can be no doubt that most of them are new creations, fresh minted in the popular imagination. The simplest of these new words are created by a process called by the awkward name of onomatopoeia, which means literally name-making, but is used to describe the process by which a word is made, imitating in its sound the thing which it is intended to describe. This imitation of natural sounds by human speech can never be an absolute imitation though some of the cries of birds and animals have almost the character of articulate speech 
and in words like cuckoo and meow we do approach something like perfect representation this means of word-making is illustrated by the old story of the foreigner in china who sitting down to a covered dish inquired quack quack and was promptly answered by bow wow from his chinese attendant but direct imitations of this kind are rare and for the most part the sounds of nature have to be translated into articulate sounds which do not imitate them but which suggest them to the mind thus the noise of splashing water has been represented by such divers sounds as bilbit and glut glut the nightingale's song by bulbul jug jug and whit whit and the noise of a gun going off which we now describe by bang was originally rendered by the word bounce this symbolism of sounds the suggestive power of various combinations of vowels and consonants has never been very carefully studied but certain associations or suggestions may be briefly stated it is obvious for instance that long vowels suggest a slower movement than the shorter vowels and that vowels which we pronounce by opening the mouth convey the idea of more massive objects while those which are formed by nearly closing the lips suggest more slight movements or more slender objects thus dong is deeper in sound than ding clank than clink and chip is a slighter action than that described by chop more subtle are the suggestions provided by consonants thus for some reason there are a number of words beginning with q u which express the idea of shaking or trembling as quiver quaver and quagmire the combination bl suggests impetus and generally the use of breath as blow blast blab blubber fl impetus with some kind of clumsy movement as flounder flop plump from the combination gr we get words like grumble which express something of the same meaning as groan grunt grunch grudge and the modern word of military origin to grouse from scr we get a number of words expressing the sense of loud outcries scream screech squeak scrike a stop consonant like k or p at the end of words suggests a sound or movement abruptly stopped as clip whip snip clap rap slap snap flap while sh in the same place describes a sound or action that does not end abruptly but is broken down into a mingled mass of smashing or rustling sounds as in dash splash smash etc the comparison of smack and smash clap and clash will show this difference words ending in mp like bump dump slump thump convey the sense of a duller and heavier sound stopped in silence but more slowly this suggestive power is due partly to direct imitation of natural sounds but more to the movements of the vocal organs and their analogy with the movements we wish to describe 
as an explosive sound describes an explosive movement as in blast or blow but a sound suddenly stopped suggests a stopped movement and a prolonged sound a movement which is prolonged also but probably these analogies are mainly formed by association a common word established in the language describes a sound or action and its sound comes to be connected with the thing that it describes other words are formed on its model and finally the expressive power of the sound suggesting as it does so many other words of similar meaning becomes a part of the unconscious inheritance of those who use the same form of speech among the older onomatopoeias in english may be mentioned in addition to those already quoted hoot and chatter the eighteenth century gave us fuss and flimsy and pom-pom a word which arose in the south african war is one of the latest additions to the list it is very rare indeed that a word is deliberately and consciously made out of sounds arbitrarily chosen but this has sometimes been successfully accomplished as in spencer's word blatant and in gas which was formed by a dutch chemist in the seventeenth century laudanum was perhaps an arbitrary term made by paracelsus and ogre is found without known antecedents in the writings of one of the earliest of french fairy-tale writers manufacturers and inventors have sometimes as we all know too well adopted this method of naming their wares and to them we owe at least one useful word formed by this process the word kodak which has been borrowed from english into several foreign languages a still more curious class of new words are those in which two or more terms are combined or as it were telescoped into one this is an old process in language and verbs like to don do on or to doff do off are examples of it in its simplest form other words supposed to be informed by this process are flurry from floor and hurry lunch from lump and hunch while flaunt is perhaps combined out of fly flout and vaunt lewis carroll amused himself by creating words of this kind and has thus added at least two words to the english language chortle probably formed by suggestions of chuckle and snort and galump out of gallop and triumphant in a large number of our new words however it is difficult to define the definite associations or analyze the elements that give them their expressive meaning they seem to be creations of the most vital faculty in language the sense of its inherent and natural fitness of the name with the thing the old words bluff queer and lounge are examples of this process which in the eighteenth century gave us cantankerous and humbug and several other similar words sometimes a word possesses a vague undefined expressiveness which seems capable of embodying various meanings and words of this kind have been employed for different purposes before their final use is settled thus conundrum which probably originated in oxford or cambridge as a piece of jocular dog latin 
was first the appellation of an odd person, then used by Ben Jonson for a whim, then for a pun, and finally settled down to its present meaning at the end of the 18th century. The old word roly-poly has acquired in the course of its history the following meanings, a rascal, a game, a dance, a pudding, and finally a plump infant. The expressive word blizzard seems to have floated about the United States in the vague sense of a poser, until the great winter storm of 1880 claimed it as its own. When Dr. Johnson, in his dictionary, came to recent words of racy character and popular origin, like coax and fun, he labelled them low words, and we have inherited from him a somewhat fastidious and scornful feeling about them. And yet a little study of the history of literature will show us that the most admired writers of the past took a very different attitude towards popular creations of this kind, and that words like rowdy, bogus, boom and rollicking, at which we boggle, would have had no terrors for the greatest of our old poets. Spencer and Shakespeare, for instance, adopted at once the then recent and probably Irish expression hubbub. The onomatopoeic bump and the dialect dwindle make their first appearance in Shakespeare's plays. And he often uses the word hurry, which, save for one doubtful instance, was not known before his time. Other words of a similar character, bang and bluster, flare and freak, huddle and bustle, were all apparently of 16th century origin, and all appear in the writings of Spencer, Shakespeare or Milton. The first known instance of gibber is in Horatio's lines, the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the Roman streets. And Hamlet, when he thought of killing his uncle, was not too fastidious to say, Now I might do it, Pat, now he is praying. The true function of the poet is not to oppose the forces that make for life and vividness in language, but to sift the new expressions as they arise and ennoble, in Shakespeare's fashion, those that are worthy of it by his usage. End of section 7